Hello, my name is Brian Hart, and uh, we are uh, continuing to look at what it means to be a prophetic church by working our way through some of the letters written to the churches in Revelation. Now, um, what you're going to hear over the next few moments is actually a re-recording. We had a glitch with the recording from uh, when I delivered this talk at the conference. So um, I'm, now, I'm now speaking in front of an empty room to the camera, and I trust you at home are leaning in and laughing at all my jokes, and that will encourage me as we go along. Um, so anyways, we're going to just take a few minutes. We're going to look at the letter written to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read the first half. We're going to unpack it, and then we're going to read the second half at the end. So if you have your Bibles, you can be reading along with me. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. We're going to pause there. Uh, you, if you've already listened to the talks given by Matt Hosier, which were, were, were broadcast at the conference, um, you'll notice that actually this church is dealing with two of the same issues that the church at Pergamum was dealing with, namely sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. Uh, we've already considered, Matt uh, helped us consider um, the dangers of being an immoral church Tonight, we're going to, or now we're going to consider the dangers of being an idolatrous church. Um, now, I think what makes, uh, what makes this church so interesting is that she is commended for good works, for love, for faithful service, and perseverance. But she's guilty of idolatry. She is, she's tolerated a woman named Jezebel. Now, um, that could mean one of two different things. That could just be a reference to the Jezebel of Israel's history, the wicked woman that Ahab married who helped lead the nation into idolatry. Or it could actually be in reference to a, a real person in, in the community named Jezebel. Either way, by bringing up that name, it's a clear reference to the, uh, uh, to, uh, it's a clear reference and, and a symbol of the spirit of the age, the prostitute of Babylon, who later in Revelation, John will go on in chapter 17 and 18 to um, describe how she lures and seduces with uh, excessive wealth and luxury, but she encourages idolatry, which is associated here with both sex and food. And the thing about this church is they're putting up with it. They are tolerating it in their midst. They're compromising. Now, as it happens, 
Idolatry is the most frequently discussed problem in the Bible. It's everywhere. And, and the problem with this church is that despite the fact that in God's word, uh, there are such severe warnings about idolatry, despite that, they are, they're, they're, they're tolerating. And that's, that was the problem. Of, oftentimes, that was the problem with the people of God in the stories of the Bible. That they, you know, you think of the kings who they, they tolerated the worship of false gods and they were judged for it because God hates idolatry and he hates when his covenant people put up with it and make room for it. And worst of all, when they participate in it. So we're going to consider how, um, you know, what happens when idolatry gets into the church and how we can fight it. But first, I think we should consider what idolatry means in the Bible, like to the people who wrote the Bible, the people who read these words, what did that mean? What, what, what was an idol? What, what, what do they mean by that? It seems like idols and idolatry can be thought of in two different senses. At least they appear that way in the Bible. The first would be in the explicitly religious and material sense. An idol is, of course, a thing, some created thing that is fashioned for people to worship, and it um, it was an agent of, or it represented the gods. And uh, in that sense, it's important to remember that uh, in that sense, idols were hated by Jews and loved by everybody else. Um, and th- that explains two things. The first thing it explains is, is that in, in the gospels, it's interesting, Jesus really never, never talks about idolatry except in one place that we're gonna come back to in a moment. It seems like by that time in the, the second temple period, this kind of idolatry, the explicitly religious sense of, of idolatry, really seems to be done away with within the land of Israel. Um, but it also explains why in the letters to the churches mixed with Jews and Gentiles, Paul and the apostle John, they, they talk about idolatry a lot. You know, the Jews had this very anti-idol sentiment, but the Gentiles, um, Hellenistic Roman converts, had to reorient themselves on how to think about these things to, to see that they're actually harmful and bad. There is a second sense, however, for how we see idolatry in the Bible. And, and that is where the worship of idols seems to be used metaphorically. One of the clearest places you would see this is at the end of 1 John. You've got uh, 1 John, which is this beautiful, wonderful letter dealing with doctrine, Christ-like living, devotion. And the last sentence of that letter reads, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It feels like such a strange, I, I don't know if you ever felt this reading, uh, reading 1 John. It has always felt to me a very strange way to end the letter. It feels a bit random, maybe like it was tacked on, um, but it, it's, it's there uh, purposefully, obviously. It's there purposefully. And, and I think it's actually written as a sum of the whole book. Remember, the book is about love and worship and devotion. You will love and worship and obey something. You will live submitted to something. So here at the very end, John is suggesting any failure to do those things rightly before God is in essence because of idolatry. Even in the Old Testament, idolatry is used to describe what's wrong in the human heart. Ezekiel uh, chapter 14 talks about the elders of Israel. They've... Um, that they're accused for have, having taken their idols into their hearts. And so idolatry is the worship of, of things uh, that, just, that describe a heart wandering from God. Idols, that's what they do. They get, they get into your heart. Now for, for Jews, and thus for the writers of both the Old and the New Testament, that's primarily how they understood people was in terms of, a, of the posture of your heart 
in worship. That's, that's fundamentally how they thought of human beings. They didn't think mainly in psychological terms. They didn't think mainly in psychosomatic terms. They thought mainly in religious terms. You are a religious creature with a heart that worships. Any drift from God in the Old Testament was generally ascribed to idolatry. In the New Testament, the, con- the concept that's primarily used for that drift uh, is desire, desires of the heart or of the flesh. But that is really not an exclusively New Testament idea. Even that seems to be taken from the Old Testament. Likely it comes from the Ten Commandments. The, the 10th commandment is about coveting. The Greek word in the Septuagint, and this is always a good thing to remember, that the, 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 the people of the New Testament who lived at the time those letters were being written and being read, they were probably more familiar with their Greek translations of the Bible than they were with the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and, and so the Greek word for covet that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is epithemeo, which means to desire. That is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 when he talks about lusting, wanting what isn't yours. When Paul talks of desires of the flesh in Galatians 5, it's that word, epithemeo, the, the, the noun of, uh, the related, the, the noun that relates to the, to, the, to the verb. Or in Ephesians 5, Paul says this, for uh, Ephesians 5, verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who, it's, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now here, the word for coveting is a different Greek word, but this, this one has the special nuance of desiring more than is your due. And Paul says, that is idolatry. So that is interesting. There's 10 commandments, and you've got the first one, uh, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not fashion for yourself any kind of idol. And then then the 10th one is, you shall not covet or desire what isn't yours. And Paul says that is idolatry. So really, three of the 10 commandments deal explicitly with idolatry. It it, it is, again, it is the most frequently mentioned problem in the Bible. So what what I want you to see is that in the Bible, Idolatry is a rich concept containing a depth of meaning. And if we're going to deal with idolatry in our day, we've got to bring forward some of that depth. Otherwise, we're going to grapple with human behavior using the tools of modern psychology and modern sciences that don't take into account the full measure of our problem. There's a brilliant article titled Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair by David Pallison, and he observes that there's fundamentally three different problems we're wrestling with when we talk about human behavior. Uh, but, but, but what he says is that every modern approach uh, isolates one from the others. For example, first, you've got the moralism of the everyday person that's really focused exclusively on the will, hu- human responsibility. So when you think of what's wrong with human behavior, the everyday person on the street is probably thinking about, I just need to make better choices. Then there are behavioral sciences that have given a lot of focus to what they call your inward drivers, the the, the things inside that motivate you and and the rewards on which those things are focused and often will take those inward drives to be unchangeable, that they're a given. And then there are other psychologies which maybe downplay the responsibility of the individual, um, will acknowledge that there are needs and drives inside of you, but really focus more on the role of social and environmental influences. You are a, you're a product of how you were raised. It's interesting that the different approaches to understanding human behavior today 
have a very hard time holding those three things together. But that is because none of them understand human beings the way that the Bible does. The Bible does not see you primarily in psychological, sociological, or biological terms, but entirely in relationship to God. In the Bible, you are either a worshiper of God or you are a worshiper of an idol. Now, that does not mean these other categories cannot be helpful. Uh, but if you, but as I've tried to show you, those, those different um, modern uh, approaches only look at the c- components. Scripture sees you as a whole. You are submitted to God or you are submitted to something else. Where a modern behavioral scientist might ask, what are your core needs? The Bible asks, who is your master? Who is your Lord? To whom do you bow down? This way of thinking about human beings really holds all three of those different strands together. We see in the Bible that idolatry is the result of choice. Human responsibility is at play. All through scripture, humans are judged for their idolatrous actions. And this really goes all the way back to the golden calf. I mean, you want to talk about a bad decision of the will. Aaron and those who followed him made a bad choice. Idolatry is also the result of warped inward drives. Scripture speaks at length to the problems of the heart. We've already talked about Ezekiel 14, where idolatry there is seen as a problem of the heart. And other word pictures in Scripture abound. Desires of the flesh, fear of man, love of money. The Bible um, makes a very clear argument that the heart loves wrongly and is itself warped. And then thirdly, in the Bible, we see that idolatry is also the result of social and environmental influences. I don't think we connect very much with the warnings in the Old Testament about intermarriage for, for reasons that are obvious today. But it's important to remember that in the Old Testament, the concerns for intermarriage and the reason why it was prohibited was always because it was tied to the infectious spread of idolatry. You are affected by the people that you spend time with. You see it play out going back all the way to Joshua and Judges, all the way through to Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, idolatry is socially motivated. In fact, in Matt's message earlier, if, you, if you've watched the video or if you were here and heard him speak, he talked about the story in Numbers 25 where the people of Israel are tempted to go after other women. And like the next verse says that they began going after other gods. Idolatry was the result of social influence. So the concept of idolatry holds three things to be true. As people, we make bad choices. Our wills and desires are enslaved. And we're more influenced by our environments than we realize. So what are we to do about that? How are we to be a prophetic church that leads people out of idolatry? How do we fight it? Well, what I want to do is look very briefly at 1 Corinthians uh, because it is the most extended treatment of idolatry that we have in the New Testament and it is shockingly relevant despite the cultural and contextual differences. And the the other reason I want to look at 1 Corinthians is because it actually helps us on how to address the three different ways that idolatry happens through the will, through the desires of the heart, and through environmental and social influence. So first, something we see in 1 Corinthians is this. To address the idolatry of the will, people must better understand both God and the thing they idolize. In other words, if people are going to make better choices, if they're going to make better decisions, they can't just be told to stop idolizing and, and, and hear me out on this, they can't even just be given a theology of who God is and why God is 
more worthy of their worship. They must also be taught how to think differently about the thing to which they, they give their worship. This is how 1 Corinthians opens. The letter addresses an entirely social problem in the life of the church where you've got people who are divided over their teachers. They're, it seems like they're, they're forming groups around Paul, Apollos, Peter. Not really sure if Peter ever came through uh, the Corinthian church, but they're clearly people who seem loyal to him. Um, and by the way, this was a very reasonable thing for them to have done because in those days, especially in a city like Corinth, you would have had sophists and orders and public speakers. And they were like the celebrities of those days. And they would form groups that were like posses. And those, those posses, those uh, fans would kind of uh, fight. They would argue about whose teacher was better than whose. It's likely the people doing this stuff thought that Paul would have approved. It would have been like a feather in his cap. But Paul does not approve. He, he is, he's outraged that they would take sides over who's their favorite teacher. And he doesn't merely rebuke them for their behavior, for, um, for idolizing him and Apollos. He doesn't merely say, don't worship your teachers. He, he does a couple of very intentional things. He gives a theology of who Christ is. He, talk, the, the, he, he talks beautifully about the, the wisdom of the cross. And he says, look, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not Paul and Apollos. But then what he does, and this is important, in chapter three, he gives an extraordinary treatment of how the Corinthians should think of their teachers and how they should think of the church itself. He helps them to understand, if you're not supposed to idolize your teachers, what are your teachers for? He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, we're servants through whom you believed and the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Then he says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He's saying, look, if you're gonna boast, boast in him. He's the one doing this. But he's very careful not to let the Corinthians think that teachers are nothing. He goes on to say uh, in, in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He's building their theology, their understanding of what teachers are for. And this goes on through the chapter. So at the end, he says, so let no one boast in men. Why? Because they're not your masters. They're not your gods. They're gifts for you. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. Every, all is yours. Everything's yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, I used to think that if we just hold out Christ, people will abandon their idol, idols and, and run to Jesus, but they don't. And that's not what Paul did. Let's take an example. Matt spoke to us very helpfully about sex. This is a huge topic in our church. A lot of the pastoring that I have been doing for the last year has been around sexual-related matters. But I've realized people don't just need to be told that they need to make better choices, and they don't even just need to be told that God is worthy of their obedience. They need a theology of sex. In fact, the stuff that Matt talked to us about in that video People need to hear that. They need to hear what is the vision of sex in the Bible. And when, when people hear that, something often clicks for them. We have had in our church uh, many couples living together, cohabitating before marriage. And when they had a vision of the gospel and then a vision of what sex is for, they actually astonishingly, they agreed to move apart because understanding who God is and understanding what the gift is for uh, it engaged their will and they made a better choice. They made a different choice. Their will was changed. So whatever the idol is, whether it's sex, money, Christian nationalism, we have to do the hard work because it is hard work 
was to do the hard work of developing a theology of those things. It's not enough to say, don't be a Christian nationalist. How should Christians think of their nation? That is a more complicated question. Doing a theology of the biblical sex ethic that's faithful to the whole Bible is harder than just telling someone to obey because Jesus is worth it. Remember what Tim Keller has taught us. An idol is merely a good thing that becomes a God thing and now it's a bad thing. But they are good things to begin with. And I don't, I don't know if we realize this, but people will actually worship God better if the thing that's an idol can get back into the category of a good gift because the gift is meant to help them worship. Think about this. Adam was in the garden and he had God to himself. And there's a sense in which the Bible seems to say it wasn't enough. God is the one who said, Adam didn't say I'm lonely. God said, it is not good that Adam is alone. God seemed to think that Adam would be a better worshiper, a better uh, imager of God with someone to be in relationship with. That relationship with Eve was meant to be a gift that would actually help him come into the fullness of who he'd been called to be as a worshiper before the Lord. If you want people to be a great worshiper of God, to appreciate the gospel, help them see that thing they're idolizing, help them see how they should think of it. Help them see it as a good gift, how things like money and sex and even being an American can help them to be better worshipers. We can say all things are theirs. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, life, death, the world, money, sex, America, all are theirs and they are Christ's and Christ is God's. So that's the first thing. If we're going to affect their will, we've got to teach them about the glory of God and we've got to teach them understand how to understand differently the things that they worship. Secondly, to address the idolatry of the heart, people need to imitate and then practice new habits. To address the idolatry of the heart, people need to imitate and then practice new habits. Paul knows this. At the end of a very long treatment of idolatry that spans three chapters in the middle of 1 Corinthians, which we're going to look at more in just a moment, he says this at the end of that. So it's chapters 8, 9, and 10, all about idolatry. And the, the very first verse of chapter 11 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the context for that verse is that when we're dealing with idolatry, people need an example to follow. Paul understands that people need doctrine. They need theology, but they also need more. They need a way to live that is demonstrated in the flesh. Some things are taught. Many things are only ever caught which is why Paul goes and he travels and he lives with people. He writes letters, but he doesn't just write letters. He goes and lives among them. He tells the Thessalonians, keep the traditions that I gave you. The Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, go into the nations and teach them the gospel. He said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Teach them my ways, my practices, my habits. You see, the heart is twisted and it takes a long time to unravel it. Someone can be saved in a moment, but it's a lifetime of the Holy Spirit untwisting and unraveling that broken heart, that warped heart. And it happens through the ways and the practices of Christ. Many of you have probably read the book by James Smith, You Are What You Love. That's his, his big idea is that, or one of the ideas in that book is that what we love, what we idolize, what we desire, those are not simply things that we choose. Many times those are things that we drift into and have been trained into, even if we're not aware of it. My wife and I are foster parents and foster parents will tell you that one of the most difficult practical things that they deal with is around mealtime. You, know, you take a child who has been raised on nothing but Fritos and candy, a, a child that's really been malnourished and try to train them to have better eating habits. It's, 
it's excruciatingly difficult. Um, and in fact, that child, you can put a steak dinner in front of that child and you can say that child is free to make the right choice here. But if a child's been raised on potato chips and fried food, 100 times out of 100, they're going to want, they're going to prefer the bad food to the good food. It takes a lifetime of parents intervening patiently and sitting with that child and modeling to them over and over and over how to eat differently. And do you know those children, their tastes can change, but it doesn't happen after one conversation. It happens after days and weeks and months, maybe even years. They can learn new tastes, but not unless someone sits with them and says, you imitate me. James Smith in his book, um, I think convincingly shows how malls were designed to do this to us. They were actually uh, modeled off of the architecture of cathedrals um, because there was, a, um, there was a very clear intention to make this a place that people would love to come that people would come with a sense of reverence, that people would come to, to love the act of buying things. Consumerism then is not something that you wake up loving, you're discipled into it over time with lots of practice. Now in, in uh, what, could, could, what could be called low church liturgy, we bristle at things that feel ritualistic, which is where uh, you know, we do something because this is how we've always done it. But we can throw out the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to rituals. Rituals are powerful, life-changing things. We teach our children to say thank you whether they feel gratitude or not. We teach them to say sorry even when it's very obvious they don't feel sorry. Because over a lifetime, by practicing the ways of gratitude and repentance, they learn to experience them. So we need to be living our lives in such a way that people can imitate us. There's a couple guys in our church, very dear friends of mine, both new to the faith. I spend time with them early every Sunday morning. They come to my house. I want them around my kids. I want them around my family. I want them to learn a different way of doing life. I can't just preach the sermons to them. They got to see a way of living differently. They don't know how to pray. I can tell them how to pray, but they don't know how, they don't know how to enjoy it. I took one of them on a, on a walk. I said, hey, let's go on a prayer walk. I'm going to show you how I pray. We're going to do this together over an hour. We can be so frustrated with how idolatrous some of the folks in our churches are. We can preach the very best sermons to them, but there's a kind of idolatry that only dies when someone has a pattern to imitate and learns to do it a new way. And this is hard in part because we don't want to be the kind of leaders that parade our piety and virtue in front of others. And, and, that is true. We should never parade. But people actually do need to see your virtue. They need to see the goodness of God in you. One of the leaders of Britain's abolitionist movement was a man named John Newton, probably familiar to most of you, or at least many of you. He's the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. He is said to have had a spiritual awakening, 1748. But after 1748, before joining the abolitionist movement, he spent five years captaining slave ships in service to the colonial slave trade. How is it possible that someone gives their life to Christ, has a revelation, decides to be a Christian, and then continues to captain slave ships? He later said, John Newton later said, of those initial years, he said, I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. We don't know this for certain, but perhaps he said that because looking back, he saw the idolatry. 
a refusal to submit to the lordship of Christ in the full sense of the word. Just because someone converts and hears the gospel and reads their Bible, it does not mean they are going to overnight give up their idols. It will often take time and it takes discipleship, not high and heavy handedness, not condescension, but love and an example to follow. So we've talked about the individual will and how what we need to be doing as leaders to affect the will so people make better choices. We talked about the heart and how it takes a long time for the Holy Spirit to change someone's heart, to give them new tastes so they, they want new things. They want the glory of God rather than the false glory of an idol. But there is also a third way that idolatry sneaks in and it's through social and, and environmental influence. And this is where 1 Corinthians not only spends a lot of time, but really offers the church um, a, a much needed word. Chapters 8 through 10 deal specifically with idolatry, but more specifically with the subject of idol meat or meat that's been sacrificed to idols. It is a complicated situation. In short, you have this place Corinth, which like many Greco-Roman locales would have had a temple. And temples were the place where most of the meat that anybody ate would have been sacrificed. There are always sacrifices happening at the temple. And the temple was not just a place of religious worship. It was a social scene, the Corinthian temple. In fact, archaeologists have discovered this in Corinth, rooms that operated something like restaurants. And so after the meat's been sacrificed, it's taken into these rooms and you might be periodically invited by someone to join you at a meal at the temple and the meat that would be sacrificed, uh, the meat that would, have, would be consumed was the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. So th there's all kinds of practical questions about how Christians should participate in this kind of thing. And the question was not, should Christians worship the idols? That's a given. That's not the question. Christians should definitely not worship idols. The question was, can Christians, how can they participate with the eating of this meat? And the answer is definitely not straightforward, according to Paul. In chapter 8, he deals with specifically eating the meat in the actual temple. And he says, absolutely not. Don't, don't ever go and do that. But then in chapter 10, he seems to suggest that Christians are free to eat the meat if it's sold in the marketplace. Uh, they can eat it in their homes. Um, by the way, most of the meat in the marketplace probably came from the temple. You buy it and take it home and eat it, and that's fine. The exception is, according to Paul, if someone invites you to dinner and says, by the way, this was offered in sacrifice, then Paul says, now, now don't eat it. In, in, in both of these cases, Paul's primary concern doesn't seem to be the Corinthian Christians who have raised this question to him about like, are they guilty of idolatry by eating this meat? The, the primary concern to Paul seems to be their posture of self-centeredness. They seem to be saying, look, we know the idols aren't real. We've got the freedom to eat this. It's just meat. Paul says, fair enough, but I'm not worried about you. Paul's worried about the weaker brother. He says, you who are so strong, what about the weaker, what about the, the weaker brother who, whose conscience isn't formed like yours and sees you doing it? He thinks that you're eating it as unto an idol and then go, he does the same thing and now he's guilty of idolatry. That, is, that seems to be Paul's real concern here, how the Corinthians valued their personal freedoms more than protecting their brothers and sisters from idolatry. In chapter eight, verse 11, he uses very strong language. He's talking to these you know, these strong Christians who uh, are, are talking about this knowledge that they have. He says, well, by your knowledge, this weak brother is destroyed. And, and it's, a, it's that word, destroyed. Not, not hurt, not injured, not had a bad example set for them. Destroyed. Idolatry is serious. And we should be serious about not only doing it, but 
we should be serious about not creating environments where other people are prone to doing it. To guard one another from idolatry, specifically the kind of idolatry that comes about from social environments, we must be willing to let go of our freedoms and rights. To guard one another from the idolatry that comes from social influence, we must be willing to let go of our freedoms and rights. Chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's famous passage on laying down his rights, comes smack between chapters 8 and 10. Because the context for laying down his rights is this question of whether or not we should do something that might lead somebody else into idolatry. In chapter 9, verse 19, he says, look, I'm, I'm free from all, I, but I made myself a servant of all. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. I've become all things to everybody. And then he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. At our church, we have those words burned into the wood in our lobby. But the context of doing it all for the sake of the gospel is the context of laying down rights so that other people won't be led into idolatry. And this is, I am sure, the most difficult thing about setting people free from idolatry. There will come a point where it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Many people have written about how Paul's commands in chapter 8 would have been undoubtedly severe to the Corinthians. If the temple scene is the center for social life, can you, be, can you imagine being told that you can't go there to eat? Can you imagine if you grew up and this is something that you have always done? You've always done it with your friends. You've always gone there. And, and then Paul says you can't go anymore. We maybe don't wrestle enough with these words because we don't appreciate the social cost of his command. And so it is with us. If we're going to be serious about pushing back the darkness of idolatry, and I'm going to, I'm going to highlight one idol in particular, the, the idol of rampant consumerism and godless capitalism, it is going to cost us, literally and figuratively. You know, ever since the time of Jesus, wealth and money have been a great threat to the witness of the church. I told you at the very beginning, there was one time that Jesus seemed to acknowledge idolatry in the Gospels. He doesn't really talk about idolatry, but he seems to acknowledge it in one place. Matthew 6, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. So now he's using the language of idolatry. No one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one or love the other, or he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The one place that Jesus seems to call out idolatry is in regard to money. Revelation 18, which describes the fall of Babylon, goes on to describe at length both her sexual immorality and the outrageous accumulation of wealth, a kind of obsession with the things of the world. And yet it is doubtful that either Paul writing to the Corinthians or John writing Revelation could have anticipated the obsession with consumerism and the accumulation of wealth that would characterize our age. I'll never forget reading in the paper a few years ago that the company Apple was under pressure from investors because its uh, revenues had dipped from 20 billion to 19.98 billion. <laughs> Can you imagine having revenues of 19.98 billion and being under pressure for not performing better? See, we live in an age where it is gospel that more is better. That when it comes to money, really when it comes to most, thing, most things, growth is always good that the market is a kind of sovereign guiding hand where scripture condemns naked self-interest, our economic assumptions presume, encourage, and often resort, uh, reward uh, naked self-interest. Here's one of the ways, and I'm going to be, I know I'm probably going to step on some toes now, but here's one of the ways that I know that idolatry is a massive idol, not just out there, but in here. 
when I compare how we treat money and how we have learned to treat sexual temptation. When it comes to sexual temptation, a lot of us, we've, we've learned, we've, we've reckoned over the years that, man, we're weak and we're no better than anybody else. In fact, it's one of the things I love about my church. Donnie, who leads our church, will, will often say like, hey, man, none of us are better than anybody else. Any of us can fall. And so we take, we take measures that are wise. We're careful, men and women, about how we interact with one another, especially in pastoral meetings, you know, having a third person in the room or keeping the door open. We know the flesh is weak. We should be realistic about that. But you know, with money, we are the opposite. We are not realistic. We are eternally optimistic. Despite the overwhelming number of warnings in scripture, that the abundance of money and possessions is like playing with fire, we're very optimistic about our ability to steward it well. With sexual sin, we know we need to bring it into the open. But with money, we keep those things secret. I mean, how many times have we been approached by a brother or sister? And I don't know about women, but I know in, for, for men and in a lot of evangelical circles, there's like a lot of talk of accountability groups. And I've had a lot of brothers over the years ask me how I'm doing in regard to sexual sin and sexual temptation. I don't know that anyone has ever asked me how I'm doing with monetary temptation. I don't think anybody's ever come to and asked to see my budget just to see, hey, how are you spending your money? We keep it in the dark. It's secret. It's personal. If a couple in my church started dating and they didn't want anyone to know about their relationship, if they didn't want anyone to speak into it, I would assume by default something was wrong. But that is exactly what we have done with wealth. Now, there's a wide range of opinions among Christians about how we should deal with the fact that we live with this economic system. I am not calling our economic model into question. The question isn't whether capitalism is good or bad. It's what do we do about the fact that people in our church are definitely idolizing wealth? What do we do about that? Our people in our church will often, in the name of freedom, assume unbridled participation in the worldly ways of wealth, like perhaps the Corinthians assumed unbridled participation of eating meat in the temple. Those Roman citizens, they needed in Corinth, they needed to hear Paul's decidedly non-Roman perspective. Yes, he was a Roman citizen, but he was thoroughly Jewish. That's the thing about idols. They live in your blind spots. And if you're going to deal with them, you've got to have somebody who's got a different perspective than you. And I think we need brothers and sisters. I'm so grateful that we're in partnership with churches and places like Nepal. We need their prophetic voice into our blind spots. I think this is one of them. I, I don't have all the answers. I need, I, I need help. From, from others who can see into this blind spot. But even if, even if we think we've seen it, is it enough to condemn the idolizing of wealth? Is it enough to say, hey, I'm free. I'm, as long as it doesn't have my heart, that's all that matters. I think Paul would ask, are you sure about that? What about your weaker brothers and sisters? Notice that in Paul, he is not concerned about the environmental effect of the world out there. Paul takes it for granted. It's darkness out there, man. That is the realm of darkness. He's concerned about the social and environmental effects of the church. What we do in here has a huge effect on everyone else. So even if we think, even if I think money doesn't have my heart, that's, the, that's not the only thing I need to be thinking about. Because if we admit that this is an idol, and I think we should be able to do that. If we admit that this is an idol for the people in our church, that it's something that people struggle with, but there is no distinction between how we live and how we interact with that thing and how the world lives with and interacts with that thing, we have a 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 problem. 
If we are more motivated about maintaining our own liberties and we care more about what we have the freedom to do when it comes to something like money, if we care more about that than rescuing our brothers and sisters from idolatry which destroys them, we have a 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 problem. Are you willing to let go of your freedoms to save the brother or sister for whom Christ died? Now, you may be asking, but what are we supposed to do then? You know, I really wrestled with this. I wanted to give some practical examples, but I'd probably have to give 10 caveats for each and it wouldn't apply to everybody because our problem is just not straightforward. Paul's problem wasn't straightforward. I would say ours is even less so. At least for Paul, he could say, don't go to the temple. It's, it's, we can't get away from our economic model. And I'm certainly not suggesting we make a new one, but we have to do something. We have to create space. There has to be distinction between the way that we deal with money and the way that everyone else does out there who's outside the church. I'm asking you, to take at least one step in that direction. Create space. We, if we don't, we are at risk of socializing people into idolatry and we don't even realize it. We need to socialize them out of idolatry. We need to give them a new way to imitate. In order for people to change, they need Jesus. They need Jesus in teaching and preaching. They need Jesus embodied in discipleship. And they need people who are willing to do what Jesus did which is to lay down their lives and their freedoms for the sake of others. I'm now going to read the end of this letter written to the church in Thyatira. John says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Friends, I'm not sure how you're feeling hearing these words. Maybe you feel like you're not doing a great job. I want to remind you that you and me were puny people with tiny brains. The Bible says we're like sheep and sheep are incredibly stupid animals. The message of the Bible is that you're small. Understanding how something like capitalism has shaped the Western mind, that, that, is, that is too great a thing, too lofty a thing for most of us. The question isn't, can you grapple with all this and do it perfectly? The question is, are you willing to do your best to bear witness and to be a prophetic voice? When I was a little boy, my parents would drop me off at school and every day they would look at me and they would say, do everything with excellence. I came home one time with a report card and I had a, a grade. It was an A minus in a class. And my dad sat me down and he said, I'm not okay with this. It doesn't matter to me that you got the A minus. What matters to me is I know you didn't try your best. You could have tried your best and you could have done better. And then a few years later, I came home with another report card and I got my first ever C. But it was a C for a class that made me work harder than I ever had. It was a, first C I'd ever gotten and I worked harder in that class than I'd ever worked before. And I will never forget my father putting his arms around me, looking me in the eye, hugging me and saying, I'm so proud of you. I don't care about the grade. You did your best. Friends, your heavenly father is way better than my dad. Way better. He knows you're not always going to get A's and your church isn't always going to get A's. What he cares about is, are you going to wake up every day and do your best to hold out Christ and lead people out of idolatry.
And if you are, your father also says, well done. And if you aren't, repent. Pour your heart out to the Lord. Confess. I, wherever wherever the, the enemy has gotten it right, maybe you've been grasping to your freedoms. You haven't wanted to lay your liberty down. Repent and then receive forgiveness. Go to sleep with a clean conscience and wake up tomorrow morning and try it again. Your father loves you. He's proud of you and he will help you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that not only are you so opposed to idolatry, you are the anti-idol. Idols demand sacrifices. You became the sacrifice. Idols demand people do things for them. You have done everything for us. Help us to live responsively to the gospel. Help us to hold out Christ in such a way that people understand you better and understand your gifts better so they can make better decisions. Help us to live lives worthy of imitation so that people learn to find new desires and that their hearts change. And help us within our churches, within the body of the church, help us to be willing to lay down our liberties so that we do not accidentally lead people into idolatry, but we intentionally lead people away from slavery, out of bondage, and into the freedom that you promise and you offer in Jesus' name.